0: The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a coach here at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey coaches, John Mitchell here. Hope you're doing well. So this week, we have a great interview of three-time Super Bowl winning quarterback, Troy Aikman. This interview is done by his broadcasting partner, Joe Buck, who does an absolutely fabulous job on prying some great lessons out of Troy. Listen for how Troy's dad shaped him as a man. He treated him as a man from the age of six years old. Also pay attention to when Troy talks about how his career was cut short by Barry Switzer's lackadaisical approach with the Dallas Cowboys. This is back when Switzer took over as head coach from Jimmy Johnson. And finally, listen for what Troy sees as his future. Boy, it's not what you think. And here's the essence of what you'll learn. Achieving things in life comes down to discipline and accountability. Would you agree with that? What a blessing it is to have a leader on your team that holds his or her teammates accountable. Maybe there's a way to cultivate more of those type of players. Listening to Troy may inspire you to find more of those players. This is gonna be good. So buckle up as we start to listen to Troy Aikman. And remember, hey, as a head coach here at the University of Texas, You're absolutely living the dream.
1: My guest tonight led his team on the field and in the process helped create one of the most renowned dynasties in the history of the NFL. After being drafted by the Dallas Cowboys as the number one pick in 1989, Troy Kenneth Aikman went from not winning a single game during his rookie season to becoming a Super Bowl MVP just four years later. It marked the beginning of an illustrious career that would garner him six Pro Bowl selections and three Super Bowl titles making him one of only four quarterbacks to ever win three or more NFL championships. But before he became the face of America's team, he wore braces on his legs until he was three years old, went from riding bikes in the sunny California breeze to feeding pigs on the family ranch in Henrietta, Oklahoma, and was almost drafted in 1984 by the New York Mets. Tonight, we learn what makes this undeniable icon who he is, a man who once said, things are never as good as you think they are or ever as bad as you think they are. Please welcome NFL Hall of Fame legend and my co-pilot in the booth for the past 13 years, Troy Aikman. Is this weird? Is this weird for me to sit across from you and talk to you about what makes Troy Aikman who Troy Aikman is? Uh, well, you know, I mean, like you said,
2: this is what, our 13th year or 14th year together. and Yeah, a little weird. I feel like you know me pretty well, but you said a few things I didn't know you did know about.
1: I, I, you've, you've been through a lot of obviously great moments in your life and, and some really life-changing, life-shaping Experiences, especially as a kid, I, you know, the whole club feet. I, I was not aware of that, that. That you dealt with that as a really young boy. Yeah, yeah I was, I was uh, and I don't.
2: I really have no recollection of it myself. So I, I was, I guess, fortunate in that sense. But, yeah, I was born with club feet, uh, and fortunately for me, my parents got on it, you know, early, and uh, and then when I'm, you were a fat little baby, little fatty, you? yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, a doctor who, and I don't know, recall his name. My, my mom should be sitting with a chair right here. She could, she could fill in all the gaps. Right, you know? I mean, she's just that way. But uh, let's bring her out. Yeah, come on yeah, out. Yeah, come on out. This is your life. <laughs> um, but uh, it was a, it was a football player, all American at Stanford, that went on to medical school, and he's the one who did the surgery on my feet and went through a few years of, of casts and braces and and, and all that and. Uh, yeah, you know, I've never had any issues whatsoever with my feet, but uh, yeah, I was born clubfoot.
1: Oh. Did were you a smoker as a as a two-year-old? <laughs> Which you'll hear me clear
2: my throat some <laughs> as we move through the night, and uh, and it started at, you know that early stages of uh, <laughs> smoking pipes. <you> know? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! So- what is, I mean, did you, you must have grabbed some? My dad pack. was a pipe smoker, and uh, my my dad was really a modern-day Wyatt herb. I grew up in in California, the street of California, and uh, my dad would show up to uh, my practices or games, and he would have cowboy hat and boots and, you know, have, a, have his pipe, and, you know, people just don't
1: dress like that typically <laughs> on the West <laughs> Coast, you know? There, so there's, I stole that one from him. I, there's nothing like the picture of a kid in a diaper <laughs> with a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned your dad. I know that you consider him one of the toughest, strongest, physically tough guys you've ever met in your life. And you've been around him your whole life. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's uh,
2: he's about 200 pounds. He's 6'3". But uh, he he really instilled uh, the fear of God in me when I was growing up. I mean, just a very tough, you know, hard-nosed individual. And, and uh, he really, he treated me like I was a grown man from the time that I was six years old. You know, it's just the way that it was. And, uh, and he's mellowed as he's gotten older, but he, he, was, he was tough and, uh, and, the, and the standards were high. And it didn't matter how young you were, you know, uh, uh, I could go through a long list of stories of what, what I was asked to do at a very young age. And, uh, and if you didn't get it right, there was, there was consequences to that. Any, any one story stand out Uh, He came home one night, and a banana peel was left on the counter. So he called the three kids down and and wanted to know who left the banana peel on the counter, and it was my oldest sister. And it seemed like whenever there was anything that happened, it was my oldest sister that kind of had done it. So (laughs) she she had left this banana peel on the the counter, and he said, the next time someone leaves a banana peel on the counter, uh, they're going to eat this banana peel. Well... About two or three weeks later, she left a banana peel on the counter, and and, uh, and she ate it. Yeah, he, <laughs> he uh, you know, he made her eat it. So, like my dad and so many other people's fathers, there was a lot of pressure, especially in those times. You know, I think as someone who had an eighth-grade education, you know, he was asked to quit school by his, uh, by his dad to work on the farm. Uh, and so what he was able to do with a limited education and, 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 you know, we were middle-class, didn't have a lot, but we never went without, you know? Um, so I'm proud of him. Uh, I, I think he's, uh, he's a
1: real example for a lot of people in, in being able to, to make the best of what you're given. Your mom, a breast cancer survivor. Um, I know she showed you a strength there and continues to, to this day that, uh, I would imagine is deeper than anything you could show, or you have yeah.
2: shown. Yeah, uh, my mom, uh, you know, I'm a mama's boy, and uh, she's a, a biggest, you know, huge sports fan, grew up. When I was growing up, she would watch the, the Rams, Angels, and Lakers were the three teams that, <clears throat> that she would watch. And so I'd walk in, she would have uh, the, the official scoring book, and she would watch the Angels and keep the official score. You know, I mean, that was my mom. She, oh. she knew all the players and so it was great. As some, for, for a guy like me who was so athletic and played you know, all these sports, you know, my dad wasn't that way. My dad wasn't as knowledgeable about sports, but my mom certainly was. And to be able to sit there and talk to her was, was really awesome. So, you know, she's been there every step of the way. And yeah, she uh, had a real scare in 97 with breast cancer and was really a miracle, should not have, should not have survived. Uh, she did, and, uh, she's still with us today and, and, still a huge influence in my life.
1: What'd you want to be when you were a kid? You know, when my father,
2: he would ask me from the time that I was, uh, six years old, seven years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I don't recall ever answering it with anything other than I want to be a professional athlete. I mean, it's all I ever wanted to be. You know, everything that I did was with that in mind, to be, uh, to be a professional athlete. And, you know, I was one of the fortunate ones. I've been one of the fortunate ones that I had a dream, and I've been able to, to live that dream. Uh, and not many get to do that.
1: Why did you guys, why did you move to Oklahoma? What, what, what was the draw? For God, me? if you get the
2: answer to that one, would you let me know? <laughs> I mean, it's... We, you don't know why you moved? Well, I, yeah, I do. We, we uh, so early on, my father grew up in Iowa. And so he, I think, always kind of, you know, longed to get back to the Midwest and, and the rat race of California at the time. And he was under a lot of stress. And, and so from the time I was in first grade, he talked about us moving uh, to, to Oklahoma, and it just went on every year. You know, we were going to move, but we didn't. And then finally, going into eighth grade, we we made the move, and uh, we built our own house. My dad, and he hired two carpenters, and we built the house. I was shingling the house. I was helping rock the house and,
1: My you know, God. all this
2: stuff at 12, and uh, then, you know, we was hauling hay, and, and we had to get it in before the rains came in, and, you know, so we would be out there, and I'm, I'm, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade, and we'd be out there all night and, you know, until four or five in the morning to get it in. And so there's a lot that came with that, but it was a a great, great experience for me to be in a small town where values really mean something and your word means something and everyone knows what people are doing. And uh, a lot of who I am uh, and what I believe and the
1: values I have came from those years uh, in uh, in Oklahoma football comes into your life I read and I'm, I'm couching this because I don't know that it's true that it was your dad that kind of wanted to see the football side of you or is that something that, that you wanted to do on your own yeah
2: I uh, my f- my favorite sport was baseball um, I think had we have stayed in California I think that's the route I would have gone And then when we moved to Oklahoma, uh, I had decided my first year that I was not going to play football, that I was just going to play baseball and basketball. And, uh, my dad pulled up. I knew it was, I knew they were signing up that summer, that day for football. And and he pulled in and, uh, he said, Hey, he says, uh, you know, they're signing up for football down in town. He says, uh. You, you, you want to sign up, right? And I didn't, I, just could, I didn't have it in me to tell him no. I just didn't. And I said, yeah, yeah, I want to sign up. And, but I always
1: wonder, had he not have pulled in that day, I wouldn't have played. Wow. But you guys were not that great at Henrietta before you stepped under center, right? Right. They changed the divisions when we were going into my junior year,
2: and it was a four-team division. So you only had, then, three division games. And we started off the year 0-7, right? We're 0-7. And And now we're going into the divisional games. We lose the first divisional game. Now we're 0-8. And And we've got two games left. And we win the last two games. So we finished second in our division. And they took the first and second place teams and got got to go to state. So. We were 2-8, and eight, and the problem was, was that it was one of the worst teams in, in Henrietta history, but it was also the first time they'd made state in, like, 20 years. <laughs> so they, our motto was, our chant was 2-8 going to state, and we thought, you know, we really thought we were peaking at the right time, you know what I mean? <laughs> they say you want to be playing your best football when you go into the postseason. Well, we were. We were on a two-game win streak, and... Uh, but sadly, uh, the story ends, as you might imagine. Uh, we, we got smoked the first round of the playoffs, so we finished our year two and nine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's, talk, uh, let's talk about you go to college and you're in Oklahoma. Jimmy Johnson took a run at you at Oklahoma State,
2: yeah. right? Yeah, in fact, I would committed to Jimmy. Uh, so Jimmy started recruiting me when I was... You know, about 15 years old, and then I was 17 when I graduated from high school, and, and, and he really wanted me. I was their number one choice uh, on the board, and, and I went to OSU and took my recruiting trip, and I told him, I said, I'm coming. I'm coming to Oklahoma State. It's where I want to be, and it really was. Uh, I told him, I said, I, but I want to go to the final recruiting weekend at Oklahoma. I mean, I'd heard so much about it. They bring in all the Heisman Trophy winners. I mean, it's just a great weekend. I said, I just want to experience that. And he tried to talk me out of it, but I went. And so I decided to go to OU. And uh, that was hard for me to tell Jimmy that. Uh, But when I got to Oklahoma, really, within the first week of my freshman year and throwing with these other quarterbacks, I mean, I, I knew that I could
1: play quarterback at the collegiate level. Did you have been drafted by the New York Mets? Yeah, that that I never knew that about you. You you were, the Mets were talking to you about legitimately being a top pick.
2: Yeah, they were they were uh, looking at me when I was at, in high school, and uh, they kept asking me. I'd already signed with Oklahoma to play quarterback, and and they kept asking me what it would take to leave, not go to OU, and then sign with them right out of high school. And and my parents had always said, hey, you're gonna go to college, but what I really wanted was to be able to say, you know. 30 years later like right now that i actually got drafted by the mets right so i was trying to hold them off and they called me up the night before the draft they said look we have to know how much it's going to take to sign you uh because we're not going to waste a pick on you and then you go to oklahoma and play quarterback and so i just threw out a number i just said it's you know two hundred thousand dollars." i i'm 17 years old and (laughs) And I'm just talking to this guy. I got no representation. I got no agent. You know, I'm like... You're just picking a what? number? I'm picking a number out of a hat. I mean, I didn't even know. I didn't even know what $200,000 was. And, uh, but it sounded good. And I said, uh, I said, $200,000. And the guy on the other line, you know, Daryl Strawberry was their best player at the time. And he's like, $200,000? He says, hell, Daryl Strawberry doesn't even make $200,000. And uh, I said, well... If you want me, you're going to pay (laughs) (laughs) $200,000. And he
1: said, have a great career at Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) He hung up the phone. That was the end of it. You're in Oklahoma. You're stuck in an offense that doesn't throw the ball. The option, for those of you who don't know, that's the the stuff we've seen some of come back into the NFL with, you fake it you hold it you flip it that's right. not that's not what your skill set was. well it wasn't me i was i was 6
2: 4 i'm white i'm slow you know It just <laughs> i had nothing going on for myself at the time you know my first start was against kansas as a freshman and and so kansas had this linebacker he was all you know all-american his name was willie plus and And what they would do was they would take the dive. You know, it didn't take long to figure this thing out. You know, I mean, it's a triple option. So, you know, I'm reading this guy. They would take the dive guy, and then I pull it, and I'm running down the line. Well, that guy would always take the pitch man. So then that means the quarterback has to take the ball. So here I am running straight up and down at 6'4". And Willie Pless came off the edge every snap and just killed me in the ribs every single snap. And... And that's what it was. I mean, that's, that became every defense's uh, approach, and it just, just wasn't, uh, it wasn't for me. So I went in and met with the offensive coordinator, Jim Donnan, uh, who went on to be the head coach at Georgia. Uh, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And he says, well, we need to go down and tell Barry. And I said, OK. And so I went down to Barry's office and said, hey, coach, I've given this some thought. So I'm in there, and and I said, "Hey, this just isn't working out, and I, I need to go. I want to go somewhere where I can take advantage of my skills." And uh, you know, you'd like to have at least the coach maybe say, "Well, let's reconsider this. You know, yeah, you're a real talent. We'd hate to lose you, right?" I mean. And but then you know, he said, "Hey, okay, where, where do you want to go?" You know, he, he pulls out this drawer. He pulls out this drawer, and he says, uh, "All right, let's go through the top passing schools in the country. We have got Iowa. We got Miami." you know, UCLA, they throw the ball. And, he, and uh, so he was, he was not trying to keep me from going. I think, I think Barry, uh, I, th- I really believe that he felt when he was recruiting me that they were going to throw the ball. I really believe he thought that's what they were going to do. And it didn't work out that way, and I, think he, I do think he felt bad about it. He and I have never really had this conversation, but I do think he felt bad. So when I went in and said, Coach, you know, I need to go somewhere, else, he knew that. But what happened was, there's Jimmy again. Jimmy was the head coach at Miami. So now he's recruiting me again at Miami. I mean, I I can't shake this guy. So (laughs) I'd just taken my UCLA recruiting trip. I'm all set then to go on my recruiting trip the next week to Miami. But I decided I don't need to go to Miami. I've already made up my mind I'm going to UCLA. Jimmy calls me up and says, hey, we got your trip all planned. You know, you come in and, you know, here's what you'll do and we'll... I said, Coach, uh, I'm sorry, but I said I'm, I'm going to UCLA, and he was he was not happy about it, you know. So now he had struck out
1: twice, <laughs> right? And you get with Terry Donahue, who yeah. uh, who I know was was a big piece of your life in, in your younger years. Yeah, he uh,
2: is someone that has had a major impact on on me and and my career, but more importantly, me. You know, just the kind of guy he is. He's just a, the the people who. Who I've tended to gravitate to the most have been, you know, not only not not so much the most talented people or not so much the greatest coaches, even though he was, but the people who I really respect, you know, who who represent themselves in a way that I just really respect and and no one does it better than this guy right here.
1: Did you have fun in college? Did did you did you go to the parties? Did you drink beer? Did you did you I mean, I know you as such a such a driven guy, such a precise guy. Did you yeah. allow yourself to have fun at UCLA? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I did.
2: <laughs> you know, I didn't drink, I uh, didn't drink in high school. Uh, didn't, uh, didn't drink at Oklahoma. And- uh, What the hell's happening here, by the way? I, I think I was drinking there. <laughs> <laughs> That's at the hula ball with uh, my two college roommates uh, at UCLA. But, w- but when I got to UCLA, uh, I r- had to redshirt. I had to sit out a year. And so I got time on my hands. I'm not playing and, you know, running around with a bunch of guys who have time on their hands and they're not playing. And going into the spring then of the first year that I'm at UCLA, uh, I, th- those two guys in particular and some other offensive linemen of mine were in uh, SAE, the fraternity. So, I decided that I was going to go into the you know, fraternity. <clears throat> and when the start of spring football began, and that's when I was going to earn the job, uh, that was also the commencement of Hell Week at SAE. Right? So, you know, the first night I'm up at 4 in the morning, and I'm scrubbing floors and, and going through that. You're I mean,
1: thinking you're back home in Cerritos. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I'm being called a maggot and everything else. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're screaming at you and throwing God, water on you. God, I can't imagine you yeah, putting a, up oh, with that. And, and the guys going in with me, or they're younger. You know, they're two years younger than me. And I, I <laughs> dealt with it. And uh, then one night at, SA, at, the, at the Hell Week, I, I got into a, a fist fight uh, with uh, what felt like the, the whole house. <laughs> I mean, it was about five guys that uh, I got into it with. Them, five guys got on me. And I still have a scar on my nose from it, but I got busted up pretty good. And they, they, uh, they, they rubbed my face in the rug, so I got rug burns on my nose, my nose is busted, and, you know, eyes aren't looking too good. <laughs> and uh, I had to go to practice the next day. And I show up at practice and, you know, not feeling particularly well anyway and then looking even worse. And, and uh, I just remember the look Coach Donahue gave me, you know. He, he gave me this look like, you know, what are you doing, you know, and who are you? And, uh, and I've never been that kind of guy anyway, but it really, uh, it, 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 it affected me and I quit the house and I, and I got locked in on, on practices. And that was kind of, you know, I still had a great
1: time, had a lot of fun when I was in college, but I got, I got really focused on why I was there. And that's really where it began. And that takes you through this, this great run. I mean, 20 and four at UCLA, you win two bowl games, you have the success, and now, now here you go. So now I'm trying to decide on an agent. When I was coming out of college,
2: I'm in Oklahoma City having these meetings with agents, and uh, in the middle of the meetings with the agents, it's, it's uh, announced that the Cowboys have sold. They had already told me. I mean, I was pretty certain I was going to be drafted by them. They had told me that I would be, but they said, yeah. I said, well, who's buying the team? And he said, yeah, it's some oil tycoon in Arkansas. And he's going to hire Jimmy Johnson as his <laughs> head coach. I said, Jimmy Johnson, and uh, so now I wanted to come to Dallas. I wanted to go to Dallas, and and now I'm thinking, man, I I I hope he doesn't have any bad feelings about me. <laughs> you know, I've turned him down twice. I hope he doesn't turn me down now. And uh, so yeah, so he's the head coach. Uh, so I'm drafted. I'm excited. You know, uh, had I knew Jimmy, he's excited. Jerry was great. He, hell, he's always excited, you know. So when you get drafted number one overall, you want to you want to come out of that, and you want to feel like you were a good player, you know. You don't want to be regarded as a bust. So we go into New Orleans. Our first game of the season is at New Orleans, and we get just throttled. I mean, we lose 28 to nothing. We couldn't do anything. Couldn't get out of our. They killed us. Couldn't move the ball. Couldn't stop. We lose 28 to nothing. The next week, we're playing at Atlanta. Jimmy calls a team up on, on Saturday's walkthrough. We go through the walkthrough. Jimmy pulls the team up, and uh, he tells us, he's, we're 0-1. We just started the year. We're 0-1. Jimmy says, hey, let me tell you guys something. This losing shit is over. <laughs> it is over. You know, tomorrow, we're going out, and we're going to whip their ass. You know, well, little did he know. That winning shit was far from over. <laughs> you know, we, we'd, we'd lose 14 more
1: times before that year was over. So that was the year we were one in 15. That's great. Yeah. How do you plow through that? How do you, how do you mentally get your your wits about you and get ready for 1990? I mean, now it's kind of all right. You got to start doing
2: something, and and. Quite honestly, the second year through the first 12 weeks of the season were, were the, really harder than my rookie year because then I really felt urgency. I felt like we needed to do something. Uh, I was – Joe, I was tough. I was tough on my teammates. I was tough. I, I wasn't interested in being anyone's friend. I had great friends. I'm not saying that, but, but that. And maybe it came from my dad, you know. I mean, my job, as I saw it, was to win. And uh, so when we hit the practice field, if guys didn't know what to do, if we'd have receivers that didn't know how to line up and what routes to run, I pissed off. I was incensed, and they knew it, and I'd tell them. Were you a
1: face mask grabber? Like a... I wasn't a face
2: mask grabber, but I was confrontational. You know, I mean, I was not afraid of conf- confrontation, and I wasn't worried about whether I was a great leader or not. I was just hell-bent on holding everybody responsible to doing their job. And I would walk off the field, and I'd just say, man, what do you got to do to win a game in this league?
1: Yeah, and I would imagine the motivation is, is kind of hard to find because it's a team game. The record really is on you. Nobody says the, the center went 0-11 in his rookie year. Nobody cares. Right. They look at you, the number one overall pick.
2: It was, it was miserable. I mean, it was absolutely miserable. It was worse than anything I went through as a rookie. Uh, Jimmy and I weren't speaking. Um, you know, just everything. I was looking to, I was actually wanting to be traded. i had had meetings with my agent and said, I just can't do this. Uh, And then we went out to Los Angeles and and we played the Rams and uh, they were a really good team. And and out of nowhere, we win the game. And uh, then we got on a four game win streak. And so we ended up finishing that season seven and nine and feeling, you know, actually
1: pretty good about ourselves. But Tell me when you meet Norv, who's a receivers coach for the Rams. Yeah. And here he comes in 1991. Right. What does a great offensive coordinator do for a quarterback? What did Norv specifically do for you? He just, it sounds simple,
2: but he took what everyone does best and he had them do what they do best. You know, I didn't throw this particular corner route particularly well. Uh, Jim Everett with the Rams did, and they threw a lot of them. And I, I just couldn't, I never got comfortable with that throw. And we didn't throw it. We just said, forget it. You know, and what I did throw well, we threw the dig routes well, you know, the 20-yard in routes. We threw the comebacks. We threw, and that's what I did. And Irvin ran those well. You know, that's what he did. He wasn't going to just blow by people all the time. So we didn't ask him to do it. And Emmett, Emmett wasn't a guy who was going to catch a lot of balls out out of the backfield. He was going to catch swing passes and that type of thing. And that's, that's what we did with him. And so, uh, it sounds really simple, but, it's, but for some reason, most offensive coordinators don't go about it that way, and, uh, and it worked for us, and uh, we all, you know, when they talk about the triplets, me, Michael, and Emmett, uh, credit Norv for our successes, and uh, you know he was, he was the right guy at the right place at the right time, and, and he got us where, really where we wanted to go.
1: Maybe it's good to uh to go through this quote right now. Things are never as good as you think they are or ever as bad as you think they are. What what does that quote mean to you? Uh I got it from Terry Donahue. Uh when I was at UCLA it's something that he
2: he said to the team all the time and and it really it resonated with me because it's so true. You know, I mean you kind of you when you think life is really really good, you know, and then something happens you realize that it really you know, wasn't as good or wasn't as good as you thought it might have been. And then when things are really, really bad, um, it's typically not as bad as you think. So, you know, I, I, I think good moments are fleeting, bad moments are fleeting. I think constantly things are in, the, in a state of change. And so I've always tried to remember that, that as good as it is, I try to appreciate it uh, and enjoy it, but know that it's not going to last long in uh, the same way
1: with, uh, with difficult times. So it turns around. You guys get to the playoffs in 91, you're hurt, part of that year. Burline's a, a part of that, a big part of that, a quarterback. But now 92. There was a belief for me that, that I knew
2: I would, I, I just am too determined to accomplish. And I knew that we would win uh, a Super Bowl at some point in my career. I really did. Um, little did I know it would
1: happen as soon as it did. But let's roll a video of, of what you guys did in 92. Two away.
0: And he'll go behind 2 and A, but it'll take him with the ball. And he's going deep.
2: Harper wide open. Touchdown.
0: Super Bowl Champions. Dallas 52, Buffalo 17. And the team now is this, yeah, you gotta start talking already. Dynasty Dallas, the 90s.
1: What a feeling that must have
2: been! That when after that pass, I'm going over the sidelines, and the guys on our sideline that that we were one and fifteen three years earlier, we were the worst, we were the doormat of the NFL, we were the worst team in the league. You know, people were laughing at us, and three years later, here we are on the sidelines, and we're the world champs. And to see the ex, you know the exuberance and the excitement and the happiness and the smiles and the celebration that was taking place and with a number of guys that were told that we would never win as long as they were playing on our team. So it was a really, really great moment. And that, that honestly is what, you know, I, don't, I know the plays. I remember all the plays. But, but that picture of when I was going off the field and seeing that, uh, that's, that's really, that embodies what,
1: what winning that Super Bowl meant. Can you describe to, to this, this audience here or those watching at home, what Jimmy Johnson was as a head coach. Because I think now you see Jimmy Johnson on TV, you and I laugh about it in the booth when we're watching the pregame show on Fox, and he's got a dog bowl and a dog collar and he's laughing and he's joking around. He was as hard nosed and hard assed a coach as you could find. You can't get any you can't get any worse than him.
2: He was. Uh he was uh he was really, really tough and he had his way of doing things and that's the way it was going to be. Um, you know, uh, he would cut guys. I think he was, you know, Jimmy was a psychology major at, at Arkansas and he really believed and believes that he can, he can, you know, like almost that he's the puppeteer, that he can make people do what he wants them to do. And I think he does have a great way about him in terms of how to hit people's buttons and how to motivate them. And so I've been, been around a lot of coaches, you know, a lot of good coaches. And what Jimmy's strength was as a coach, I think, was that there would be a safety, for instance, that was a good player. Not a great player, but a good player. And Jimmy in a team meeting would say, hey, you know, so-and-so, you're, you're, you're the best safety I've ever seen. You're better than anybody I've ever coached, you know. And uh, this week, you're going to be lined up against so-and-so, and you're going you're to whip his butt, you know. You're going to cover And that guy... I would watch it. This guy who was who just kind of going through the motions, all of a sudden, you know what? We'd go out to practice. He's got his chest out. He's feeling good about himself, you know? And Jimmy's philosophy was always coach the player to be what you want him to be and not what he is. And it really is a, is a, is a good philosophy in life, you know? I mean, treat people or encourage people to what you want them to be instead of maybe, you know, keeping them where they are. And, and I thought he was really, really
1: great at that. Because now you guys are world champions. How do you keep the motivation? Do you sense that, that any of that is starting to deteriorate, the, the will to win?
2: Uh, well, it, it, things were, were different. I mean, you definitely sense that. I mean, you go in then to the start of the year and you realize you're a good team, You know, right? You know you're a good team. But, yeah, there's guys who are in contracts that, that think they were the reason. Not that they weren't. But everyone then is elevated in terms of what they feel their, their value or what their worth was. It becomes hard. It becomes hard for every team then to keep those guys. And, and we lost over the years. We lost a lot of guys. But, you know, people ask me, hey, how come, the, how come so few teams win back-to-back Super Bowls? And, and I always say because it's so hard to win one. You know, it's just hard to win. It's hard to win the first one, you know. And so to try to do it again, I mean, it's just uh, it's, it's very difficult to do. let's watch it. Smith. Touchdown.
1: This is where Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones are going to be dangerous
2: together. These guys like coming to the Super Bowl.
0: They want to continue this run. 30-13 to 13, Dallas. The Dallas dynasty is real.
1: You win in 92, you win in 93, nobody's won three Super Bowls in a row and all of a sudden jimmy johnson's gone i I know that that you will forever for the rest of your life think what could have been if if jimmy johnson and jerry jones could have coexisted
2: yeah i think uh I, i think they were you know they were young they were brash they were confident guys and i think both of them thought that they could do it you know again and do it under their terms and and they realized that what they had was something that was really special and that's hard to get. What we had in, in that moment, you know, you can spend a lifetime in coaching and as a player and, and not capture that. But, you know, they, they didn't know that. And it's, it's a shame. I can tell you with all honesty that there was never any jealousy between Michael, Emmett, me, any of the guys. You know, we all sacrificed. We all gave up something to be good and to win. But the two guys leading the organization, they didn't, and they couldn't. And yet they were the ones telling us that's what we needed to do. And so that's the, that's the part that really bothers me, and uh, it should never have happened. And I think that, you know, people ask, hey, if, if Jimmy had stayed, how, how, how many more Super Bowls would you have won? And I don't know. M- maybe no more. You know, maybe a lot more. I don't know. But what I do know is that we would have been really good for a long time, you know, because he has such a great eye for talent and he had a great way of preparing a team that we would have been knocking on the door every year just like New England is. So when people talk about like Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, I say Bill Belichick, there's no question that he benefits by having a quarterback like Tom Brady, right? But... Tom Brady benefits. He's got a head coach that doesn't want to do anything other than coach, and a great one. You know, Jimmy wanted to go fishing. You know, I mean, if Jimmy had wanted, if Jimmy had wanted to coach and had nothing else in his life like Bill Belichick, I would have been regarded much differently than I am now, and uh, and Emmett would have, and Michael, we all would have. We would have, we would have been big winners for a lot longer period. Wait a of time.
1: minute! Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> that,
2: wow. You don't feel like you're regarded. No, I'm. I, I feel that within the game of football that I'm highly respected, and that's all I ever wanted. Um, but had, had Jimmy have stayed, you know, those numbers that maybe they say, ah, oh, you know, not that big a deal, um, would have looked differently. You know, whether that means okay, well, instead of three, you maybe won five, or instead of four NFC championships, you were in seven. You know, whatever it might have been, I don't know, but uh, I, I know that we would have won at a much more consistent rate than we did after he left.
1: Shortly after dealing with Jimmy Johnson leaving, I know you were going through something else that was difficult for you and your family. The Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, your sister was a nurse at St. Anthony Hospital there? Yeah. Would, would, would a, a picture like this... And then the devastation that that created, and, and your sister being there, front and center. Uh, what does that picture bring back for you? Um. Hmm.
2: That that one's, that's hard because uh, you know it was it, it was in Oklahoma. Um you know, where I spend, you know, my formative years and I and I think the the the, the difficult part or why it's emotional for me, uh is because uh, my sister, she she was a nurse there at the hospital at St. Anthony's, uh, and she witnessed, you know, the people who were coming in off the streets and, and they were rushing in and they didn't have enough beds to, you know, you know, get these people to and and uh and and I visited Oklahoma City Jerry took a bus we flew and we went and visited them and 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 what came of that a, a lot like I guess uh you know what we witnessed on 911 was uh just the the courage of the human spirit you know and these people uh whose lives were turned upside down in in a matter of moments uh and yet the ones that I visited were uh it was amazing how positive and how upbeat they were. And they weren't, you know, uh, they weren't angry. And, res- you know, and th- it was it was really remarkable. Um, and my sister, after the bombing, my sister now runs, she's the CEO of St. Anthony's. She now runs the entire hospital. And uh, when we went back, uh, and had a had a had a charity softball game to raise money for the victims, and uh, Roy Firestone was there, and we he wanted to sit down and do an interview with me, and he wanted to do an interview with my sister, so I sat down. I asked my sister Tammy, Hey, are you okay with this? They want to talk about the benefit and what we're doing and your experiences of having been so up close there on the front lines, and she said, Yeah, she was okay with it. So I spoke and. You know, I guess the, the emotion for me comes from having been with the victims, but also just seeing her. She, she, she couldn't talk that day. Um, she didn't do the interview. She tried to. And, um... Uh, I've, I've tried uh, to talk to her about it, and she just can't, so... Um, You know, the heroes, the people that we refer to as heroes and, uh, you know, football players or athletes, actors, whatever, uh, you know, the heroes are the ones in moments of crisis that that really, you know, put it on the line, So.
1: so. Now with Jimmy Johnson out, your next coach is Barry Switzer who you left at Oklahoma, and two years later, you win your third Super Bowl with. But all hell's kind of breaking loose. I mean, that, that's what we as outsiders, as fans, see with the stuff with Irvin and uh, the White House and all the other stuff that was going on that was, uh, that was crazy. I mean, it, you know, it was like a, it's like a Hollywood script yeah
2: uh as far as the white house goes i didn't know anything about that until it came out publicly you know i mean so that wasn't... But the average family would go oh bullshit. It yeah, i know all about i it. know i didn't i really did not um but uh it, it was it was just really uh just another example of how how loose things had gotten there was no attention to practice there was no attention to showing up on time for meetings and you know, if you practice, great. And if you didn't, okay. And then you go out and you struggle and you ask yourself why. I mean, you know, it's, it's obvious why. Being respected for what I did was important. And you, and you want to have a great career for the organization that drafted you. And, and that happened early, you know. And we won. And then all of a sudden we're on the tail end. And things beyond my control were keeping us from winning. And it was, I was not a guy you wanted to be around you know, it was really, really hard. And, uh, so to go through that at the end was, uh, a, a real disappointment to me. And the reason that I retired was because I said, I spent too much time trying to build up, uh, some credibility and respect for my career and I'm pissing it away and I have nothing to, and I have no say in it and I'm not going to be a part of that. And that's what I said to Jerry. Uh, so when I, when I left the Cowboys, I thought I might play elsewhere, but it didn't happen, but I was never going to play for the Cowboys again. Does it feel good to know that you spent the entire career with Dallas? Yeah. I look back on it and I, and I'm glad that it worked out the way that it did. And I, and I didn't play, I didn't play elsewhere. Um, you know, it, uh, it, it, it feels like it was the right thing to do. And, and, uh, and I had an opportunity, you know, Ed Gorn, who's here tonight, uh, He called me up and said, hey, if you retire, we have an opportunity for you with Fox. Matt Millen had just signed to be the general manager with the Detroit Lions. And so I was weighing that. I said, you know, do I want to go out and play another year, risk having another terrible season? And, you know, or, you know, do I want to just say, okay, I'm going to retire as a cowboy, be done with it, and then move on. And I got a great opportunity to move into the number two
1: booth. And and that's what I decided to do. Talk about concussions and and why you don't want to be the spokesperson for concussions.
2: Well, I don't want to be because I'm 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 healthy. I'm fine. You know, I hope that continues. But I haven't had any issues whatsoever. You know, with it, I feel like I had two really severe head injuries. First one that I had, the first big one I had, was my rookie year against the Arizona Cardinals. I got knocked out cold for 10 minutes. Uh, I have uh, don't don't remember uh, the pass or what took place and. Uh, Uh, Had you know, blood coming from my ear uh, for a week after the game, Uh, and I never missed the the following game until my last season uh, after any head injury. Um, So that was the first really significant one. Had no head injuries uh, in college or in high school, and then the the really most severe one was the NFC Championship game in '93, which I still have no recollection of even having played in that game, and I got knocked out. In the, uh, in the third quarter. So I have amnesia from that game. I spent the night in the hospital. Uh, knowing how severe that one was, yeah, you kind of wonder, gosh, I mean, what all took place and what's the collateral damage moving forward? But uh, I haven't had any issues. I think the job that we do uh, helps confirm, in my opinion, you know, when you're able to recall numbers and names and have to do it pretty quickly. Uh, maybe that helps. I don't know. But it certainly reminds me that, okay, you're doing okay. Uh, even though I occasionally call Randall Cobb Reggie Cobb. Shut uh, up.
1: <laughs> You're a moron for that, by the way. You put that in your head before we do a game. I know. I know. But so <laughs> anyway,
2: whenever, whenever, uh, whenever they want to talk about head injury, it's me and Steve Young. And Steve retired because... He's of, doing okay, too. He's doing great. He's doing great. So, yeah, I get asked to do these interviews and talk. I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want people saying, head injury Troy, head injury Steve or whatever. I, you know, I'm, I'm good. And I see guys. I know there's a lot of guys who aren't. A lot of former teammates of mine aren't doing well. And I don't want anybody being the poster boy for head injury. Uh, but it's certainly not me, at least at 48 years old. And so I have not done uh, really many interviews. Most of the time I don't even talk about it, uh, if anybody even brings it up.
1: I appreciate you talking about it tonight. I, I sense, and you and I really haven't talked about it much, but when UCLA retired your number and you got a chance to go back and be honored that way, that, that was fine. But getting to do it right there, and that almost makes me cry. Seeing your girls there, understanding what dad meant to these Bruin fans. I... What a day that must have been for you! I
2: think for UCLA to, uh, for them to retire my jersey, that that meant that meant a ton. But uh, you know, my girls, they, they they still don't quite. You know, they know the jersey got retired. They they weren't. You know, I had my kids after I my career ended. So they didn't never see me play, but they hear about it. They're you know, and they're aware of it now more because I broadcast. And their friends uh, say, "Oh yeah, he was quarterback." And you know, so for them to be there, it was special. And um, I'm just trying to, you know, like you and like everyone else who has kids, just trying to influence the girls in 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 the most positive of ways. And you know, there was a summer a few years ago where I didn't feel like my girls were getting out and exercising enough. And so, I took it upon myself to say, okay, we're going to go on a walk. Every day, we're going to go on a walk in the summer. We're going to walk, and it was a probably about a three-mile walk. And we're walking uh, one day, and I don't know, I was in one of those moods where I just was kind of, you know, frustrated and, you know, Crabby. and God, and, I see that every
1: freaking weekend of my life. So...
2: My oldest, you know, I'm having these. And you haven't done this, and you haven't cleaned this, and you know, whatever. And and then, then I got on. The oldest plays lacrosse, and the coaches are constantly saying, "Hey, you got to throw the ball up against the wall 100 times." I said, "Yeah." I said, "Your coach has been telling you to practice on on the wall." I said, "I haven't seen you do it once." I mean, I haven't seen it once. And as I'm walking, you just feel like there's there's no one walking but alongside (laughs) you anymore. So I'm walking, and I finally I stop, and I turn around. And they had stopped. You know, they're like 10 yards behind me, and my, you know, she's got her head down. And I go walking back there, and I said, what's, what's the deal? And she says, she says, Dad, you know, I don't want to disappoint you, but she says, I just got to tell you, I'm not going to be a professional athlete. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, darling, there, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that you're not going to be a professional <laughs> athlete. Right, but but I said you're gonna be something. You're gonna be something. I mean, I don't know what it is, but you're gonna be something in life. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna to go to college. You're gonna be a nurse. You're gonna be, a, you know, you're gonna whatever. You're gonna be something. And I'm just telling you, it doesn't just happen. And whatever you're whatever you're gonna do, you you know, you want do you want to be good at it? Do you want to be great at it? You just want to kind of go through the motions, you know, and. I said I would think you would want to be great at whatever it is you do, and I'm just telling you that if you're going to be really good and great, you got to you got to put in the time, and that's you know, and so there's there's those lessons, and you know I don't know raising kids has been you know the hardest thing I've ever done. It's been the most rewarding thing I've ever done, and I I don't know if I'm getting through to them. I mean I'll, I'll find out in in a few years, you know, you know they're great
1: girls. Shout they out. They're, they're great, great girls, and you have. You should really, of all the things we've talked about here tonight, I can tell you, as your friend, you should be really proud of the father that you are. Thank you. Do you look back, any regrets? And anything in your career that, uh, that you didn't get done? No, I really don't. Um,
2: the one uh, thing that I was told uh, by, I've mentioned his name now a few times in this, since I've been out here, is, is Norv Turner, right? So I'm out there and I'm playing and I throw two interceptions, three interceptions, we lose a game. And, and Norv, uh, on Monday morning, I'd go in there and he'd say, you know, he says, sometimes you, you, we have to take a step back and realize that these are the jobs we always dreamed of having. You know, sometimes you need somebody to be able to remind you that you know you're doing something that you always wanted to do, and I got to do that. And and I said it earlier, but not a lot get to do that. Not many people get to do that. So uh, I I really don't have any regrets or situations and moments in my life like everyone that I wish I'd done handled differently. But uh, I'm one of the lucky guys on the face of the earth that that's really been able to do everything that I'd ever hoped I'd be able to do uh and uh and it's been a lot of fun you know as we wind down what's next for you you know my youngest is in seventh grade so she'll be graduating here in five years uh i you know it'll free me up to maybe get into some other stuff i i I have always kind of thought that maybe i would go into the football side of things and talking
1: about being in a front office yeah
2: but you know if someone said how long are you going to broadcast I don't know. I think uh, if that's the road I'm taking, I'd say, you know, 10 more years or something. Long enough to win an Emmy, for God's sake. If I win one, yeah, I may not come back. Oh, come on. I'll go out (laughs) a (laughs) winner. But, uh, yeah, I I just, but what I don't see myself, I don't see myself myself growing old in front of a TV, you know, or on TV. I I don't
1: see that. I'll move on to other things. Let's both make that pact right now to each other. This is how we end it. You don't know this, you're a fresh audience. This is how we end it. Five fun questions that I have not written. I want you to remember that part. You got that part? I've not written this? Got it. I've not seen them.
2: I'm assuming I'm answering the questions.
1: Yes. (laughs) Would you rather look like a baby for the rest of your life or talk like a baby for the rest of your life? Uh I would rather look like a baby. But talk like Troy Aikman as a forty-eight year old. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can flash back that picture of you in a diaper with a pipe. <laughs> there he is. And out of that mouth comes I want to tell you about winning, kids.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> would you rather lose ten thousand dollars? or lose all of your phone contacts? That's not a fair public question. <laughs> the 10 grand. You don't care about the 10 grand.
2: Yeah, I do, but I'd, I'd, <laughs>
1: I'd rather have my phone contacts. OK. Would you rather eat poison ivy or eat a handful of live bees? Uh, I'd eat poison ivy. Uh, Who came I, up with these questions? I, uh... <laughs> Would you rather never have coffee again or live without TV forever? Uh, That's a good question. You, you just mow coffee. No, you no, dominate no. a coffee I pot. I like
2: coffee in the morning, but I'm not a big, big coffee drinker. I, oh. I, I could give up coffee.
1: Yeah. I could give up coffee. <laughs> Would you rather have shoehorns for hands... <laughs> Or bed springs for feet?
2: I, you know, I guess I'd go, what, bed springs for feet? <laughs> huh?
1: You could have run the wishbone with bed springs for <laughs> feet. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be here doing this interview, I guess, no. if that had happened. No. I guess by way of closing this out, I, I would uh, I would say thank you. It's fun and a little bit intimidating to interview a good friend, and, and I... I thank you for your honesty and uh, your openness. Thank you. This guy is one of the greatest
2: guys that I've had the pleasure of getting to know. Uh, immensely talented. Gets tired of me saying that. And, and No, no, no. And I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. And an amazing dad in his own right. He's been a great example for me in that regard. And, and hey, thank all of you. It's been a long night. I appreciate you all coming. Troy Aikman, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Coaches, that was so enlightening. I hope you found it beneficial to you. So let me share with you three takeaways just to think about. So here's the first one. Troy's background. He was tough because of his dad. His dad treated him like a man from the age of six years old, not as a kid. And there are always consequences from his dad if he didn't do what he was supposed to do. But oddly enough, his mom was a big sports fan in the family. And Troy knew that he wanted to be a professional athlete at the age of six. And from that early age, Troy was always very value-oriented. That came from growing up in a small town in Oklahoma, where values are important. And here's a second takeaway. Troy's NFL career was cut short by Barry Switzer's approach with the Dallas Cowboys. When Barry Switzer took over as head coach of the Dallas Cowboys after Jimmy Johnson left, Boy, it was a nightmare. Switzer was very lax in how he ran the team. And that put the responsibility on Troy to be the disciplinarian. But Troy found that tremendously frustrating. So much so that Troy asked to be traded. And in the end, Switzer's approach caused Eggman's career to be shorter by probably five or six years than it otherwise would have been. And here's the third takeaway. Troy's future. Likely, it's in an NFL front office. Troy doesn't see himself doing broadcasting the rest of his life. He envisions taking all he has learned about football and being an executive in the front office of an NFL team. And coaches, here's the action step from this week. From this interview, you can appreciate how great a leader Troy was. He demanded excellence from his teammates, and he was confrontational. What a blessing that is for a coach. So here's a question to think about. Who on your team has the internal constitution to be that kind of leader for your team? Maybe you can bring that out in a particular player with a little coaching and guidance. And using Troy Aikman as an example might be worth thinking about as you recruit players into your program. Well, until next time, hook up.